This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. This is your wake-up call. I am awake and alive in the beehive. Thank, I keep making you do it earlier and earlier. Now we're, we're 7 a.m. your time, so uh, thanks. You, you probably haven't gone to sleep yet. <laughs> Praxis night shift literally just ended. <laughs> I'm going to tell you like this guy told me when I first moved to L.A. I was looking at apartments and uh, there was a guy standing outside of an apartment complex. And I was like, hey, man, how do you like living at this place? And he looks at me and he says, I ain't saying. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. That reminds me of uh, what was the Boogie Cousins? The, uh, for those of you who aren't NBA fans. Um, what did he tweet? Oh man, it was so awesome. So like literally five minutes after the Sacramento Kings drafted what many perceived to be a pretty disappointing player, Boogie Cousins, uh, writes a tweet that says, Lord, give me the strength. Boogie Cousins is like the best player on the Kings. (laughs) And and then uh, a reporter asked him about it. They're like, Hey, why did you write that immediately after the draft pick when, you know, I mean, his team was clearly frustrated because his team was already pretty bad. And he goes, oh, I was just, you know, putting a prayer out there. (laughs) (laughs) Coincidental. Lord, give me this. So that's TK's line now all the time. He just says, Lord, give me the strength. (laughs) Um, Did you pursue that guy when you asked him about the apartment and he said, I can't say? (laughs) Oh, no, I I literally made my decision about that place right away. (laughs) (laughs) Which was what? Which was to live there for the rest of my life. <laughs> That's what I figured. You were like, mm, there's mystery about this place. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I can learn truths here. Hey, so uh, I want to start off today. We Speaking of the NBA, there's an NBA tie-in. Moral intuitionism, state violence, and former NBA star, current mayor, Kevin Johnson, beating a man up for throwing a pie in his face. <laughs> Dude, that is truly one of the most awesome stories. So, and I, I think this is the only story that will make you gladly break your rule of not mentioning politicians yeah, by I, name. It's I, like, hey, see, I'm not mentioning a politician by name. I'm mentioning a former NBA star by name. <laughs> right. So you got to recount the story for me. And then you said you had it gave you some like insight and epiphany, which I'm not surprised by because pretty much every truth that you uncover the moment of breakthrough comes when there's some way to tie it to the NBA. So this is uh, <laughs> it's going to be exciting. Oh, man, there's a there's an interesting uh, synchronistic tie in as well, because Kevin Johnson happens to be the mayor of Sacramento, which is where Boogie Cousins lives, Sacramento Kings. Well, and so, Kevin uh, Johnson was on that Suns team in the NBA championship, right? Uh, you bet. That, uh, that just happened to be on the TV that I was watching in the Bahamas uh, last week the same day that you had a dream about that same championship series, right? So that, that, that's a true story. That is, that is a true story. I, the synchronicity I up, is real. Yeah. Synchronicity is real, man. We're, All right. We're so being the, primed for this Kevin Johnson story. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. All right. So Kevin Johnson, one of the be- one of the better NBA point guards in history, um, is now the mayor of Sacramento and he was speaking at some event and a guy basically threw a pie in his face and Kevin Johnson <laughs> beats the guy up for throwing a pie, in the, a pie in his face. Now, when I read the article, the whole thing reads like a story from The Onion. It's just 
an unbelievable story. First, the, first of all, the guy, I mean, he, the, the, at least the picture they showed of him, the dude is looking like some kind <laughs> of comic book villain. And then he tells the police why he would even mention this to the police. He's got like long, scraggly hair and looks <laughs> yeah. kind of like dopey. Yeah. And so he tells the police that the pie he threw at Kevin Johnson's face was a coconut pie. <laughs> and <laughs> I don't know how you get into a conversation with the cops about that. But he had a reason, pie. right? Yeah, he had a reason. He said it was a coconut pie because he really likes coconut. And he was afraid that he might chicken out and not not follow through on his goal. And he wanted to make a pie that he would actually enjoy eating in case he got too scared to throw it at Kevin Johnson's face. That is the best detail. Whatever reporter found that and included it in the otherwise very like flat story. I mean, it's a crazy event anyway, but like I, that detail is just so perfect <laughs> that the guy made a coconut cream pie yeah. so he could eat it afterwards in case he chickened out oh and he gave he gave at least one legit reason why you not why you might not want to throw a pie in a politician's face it's a uh, perfectly good waste of coconut <laughs> so <laughs> so anyway this dude gets beat up i mean kevin johnson does what no other politician probably would do but which many of them would want to do but he just beats the guy up now i don't know what happened if kj's going to get any trouble in any trouble but this guy definitely caught a beat down and my first reaction when i read this after laughing at the onion like narrative was man that dude had it coming. He had it coming. He deserved to catch a beat down. That was kind of like my thought. And it made me pause for a second because, you know, the, the philosophical side of me, you know, the non-street side of me, because we all know that I'm so street. The non-street side of me was like, wait a minute, TK. Did he really deserve to catch a beat down? Was that really right of KJ to use violence? Because it's not like it was self-defense. The guy had already gotten the, uh, the pie throw in. He had already succeeded and was already, you know, kind of like prevented from doing any further damage. But K KJ just lost his cool and he went off on the dude. Um, and, and it made me think about the fact that we all seem to have this intuition that says you had it coming to you if you do certain things and you experience negative repercussions as a result. And, and, and this affects our ability to sympathize. So one everyday example might be if I see you carrying a cup of coffee across the room and you seem to be moving carefully and you're very concerned about dropping it and you drop the cup of coffee, I'll feel really bad for you and help you clean it up. I'll go, oh, man, you know, and I'll help you out. On the other hand, if you're dancing around the room, being goofy and careless and I say, hey, man, be careful. You're carrying a cup of hot coffee and then you spill it. I'm not going to have the same reaction. I'm going to kind of be like, well, you're an idiot and you deserve that. And in a lot of cases where we see people you know, get punched in the face or we see people experience something negative, we tend to not feel bad for them or we tend to say you deserved it. If they did something stupid or inappropriate or untimely, which we believe would have resulted in, you know, um, a different experience had they, you know, exercised a little bit of restraint or self-control or diplomacy. Um, and it made me wonder if this is one of the reasons why we tend to be so tolerant of state violence. Because when you look at media reports of people who are often the victims of uh, abuses of power, 
So I'll give you an example of a, a case that I, I think this is true. It was uh, the Sandra Bland police pullover. Um, this was a case where, you know, th th there was the mysterious death in the, you know, uh, once she was arrested and the family accused them of murdering her. And there's all of this ambiguity about what happened. But long before we get to that point, the police officer pulls her over. And whether he had a legit reason or not it isn't the case for me. Uh, what happens is he pulls her over and he clearly gets angry at her because she's just kind of like not respecting him, right? Um, she's not deferring to him. She's not doing anything illegal, but she's kind of talking to him like he's a regular dude. And it's clear that, you know, his ego gets a little wounded. As as And, and none of us like when people talk to us in this way, but most of us just don't really – have the power to, to do anything about it and get away with it. Pistol you know, other with than you, son. <laughs> right. <laughs> Most of us just have to exit the conversation. But, you know, he asked her to put her cigarette out as she's smoking in her car. And, and she tells him, I don't have to stop smoking in my car. And, and, and it's one of those moments where if you're watching the video, it's like, ooh. Now, technically, she's right. Technically, it's not illegal for her to smoke in her car. And she doesn't have to put her cigarette out. Um, but, you know, this guy doesn't like that and he gets mad and, you know, he makes her get out of the car and so forth. And then things go awry. And when, when we watch stories like this, you find a lot of people say things like, well, she should have just shut her mouth. She had it coming to her. Well, she should have just listened and obeyed. She had it coming to her. Well, she did kind of get an attitude. And it's almost as if if we can point out one thing that this person did wrong, whether it was in that moment or 10 years ago. Well, you know, when the dude went to college, he did deal, he did sell marijuana. You know what I mean? And it's like instantly. Those, you know, those nope. are the even more extreme cases when, you know, somebody gets beaten or even killed uh, by a police officer. If they were first, you know, caught because they, whatever, stole something or had marijuana on them, there's always that, well, I mean, yeah, the cop went too far, but none of this would have happened. You know, they they kind of had it coming in a way because they were up to no good sort of thing, you know? Yeah, I, I don't remember the guy's name, but there's a there's a recent video of a guy. You, you see him clearly running from the cops, and I, I don't know why he was running. You know, the video shows us that the dude is clearly running. And, 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 and when the cops kind of catch up with him and they jump out of the car – you know, the guy realizes that the gig is up, that that running is futile at this point. And he he, he lays down and you see, you know, the there are like four or five cops rush him. And the first cop who gets him pulls the hands behind the back as the guy's on the ground and he has him. And the other cops, they just get down and they start pummeling the guy. And they're like and, and they say, stop resisting, stop resisting, stop resisting as they're just giving this dude a beat down now. I don't know what was going on. I don't know that whole story. I don't know uh, why he was running, um, whether or not that was justified. Arguably, that's not justified, but who knows? But it's one of those things where people look at this and you see so many people say things like, yeah, but he, but he shouldn't have been running. Um, or if you defend the notion that maybe the situation should have been handled differently, people will respond by saying, yeah, but the guy, but the guy shouldn't have been running. The guy was doing what's, something wrong. And what's so troubling about that response is that it, it completely turns on its head the main justification people give for police and their whole function. The, the main thing people say that police are needed for and, oh, this is why it's valuable, is to prevent 
crime and violence, whatever. And in reality, that's almost never happens. And so if they're not preventative, it, the justice system is supposed to be the, you know, uh, restorative or even retributive. Um, but I'm not a big fan of that, <laughs> um, component, but here you have these guys on site who they obviously didn't prevent whatever, um, happened that has them, you know, chasing this person because it already happened. And now they've, they've got them. Their job is not retributive. Their job is not, okay, you did something bad. Now we're going to do something worse to you. Like no one would argue that's the proper role of police, but something about this, oh, well, they did something wrong. It's like, oh, just, just turn the other way. Yeah. The police shouldn't have done that, but he kind of had it coming. And it's like, well, no, 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 that's not, that's not the function here. I mean, if the function of, of cops is just to go out and find people who screwed up and then beat them down after the fact, <laughs> you know, um, that's pretty frightening. It, 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 it is. The, the, it, I guess I'm just trying to make a distinction. The line between preventative, you know, violence or force and retributive, I think is a big deal. And actually, it's, it's clearer to see with with my own children if, you know, one of them flings food at the other one or something, a pie. <laughs> and uh, the other one responds by just like beating them down. Um, it's so obviously not a good thing for one, you know, it's only going to escalate the situation Two, it's like, okay, even if there's a little, you know, fairness, this, this kid had it coming cause they keep teasing you involved. The, there's like a, there's like a degree of response. You know, if you steal something out of my room and I go steal something out of your room, I still don't like that cause it's escalating the situation. And I still don't think that's an optimal behavior. But that makes a little bit more sense than you steal something out of my room. So I come in and punch you like 20, 20 times. And so you can see it really clearly with children where it's like, okay, well, this, this is clearly not, now you're just vindictive. Now you're just ticked off about what already happened and can't be undone. You're not helping resolve the situation at all. You know, your sibling broke your thing. That's done and gone. What can we do to make things better moving forward? Can they buy you a new one, whatever? But going in and breaking 10 of their things, this is this is like, you know, lesson number one in parenting is like, how can I try to create uh, the awareness and incentive structure around my kids that they understand this is going to escalate things and try to help de-escalate things instead, try to help, you know, resolve things peacefully um, and so it's really easy. I mean, anyone can see that when they're watching kids like, oh, no, no, that was not fair. That was not good. This is not where things should go. But something different happens, I think, when you see certainly if it's a police officer or some sort of authority figure, it's like, yeah, they shouldn't have done that. But, you know, they had a person had it coming anyway. Like, I don't know. There's there's something that happens in our minds that that separates that very basic intuition that we get and almost flips it and reverses it and makes us think it's sort of okay because the person had it coming. Okay. So, so here's my dilemma though. I mean, I, I experienced this when I, when I read about the KJ situation and I've got experiences from my own life where I tend to relate to this kind of like vigilante justice. Right. Um, and, and you would never hear me arguing for, uh, the appropriateness of of excessive violence by the state or anything like that. But I think about when I when I watched Batman versus Superman, and I'm you know sorry. I see. 
<laughs> Have you ever seen the sad Ben Affleck video? Yeah, yes, it's amazing. <laughs> that is why the smiled friend. <laughs> That's why the internet exists, right yep. there, man. Um, so you know, in that spoiler alert, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, in that final scene. You, first of all, you see this contrast between how Superman handles everything and how Batman handles everything. And Superman's always like, you know, we got to do everything the right way, the moral way, by the book and so forth. And Batman's always like, nah, man, this dude's a criminal and he deserves, you know, he deserves to get it because the system's always too light on him. And, um, you know, in that final scene, you know, you see the guy in jail and Batman does something that's technically illegal. He, he he mystically appears inside the dude's cell and he slams him against that wall. And for Batman fans, you watch that scene and you're like, yeah, yeah, that dude deserved that. I know it wasn't right, but that dude deserved it. He hurt too many people. I, I had an experience when I was in about, I want to say maybe like fourth or fifth grade or something like that. I was on a playground at school and there was this guy. He, he used to bully people a lot. And and the guy actually got in my face. I didn't start anything with him. Um, and the dude started to pick on me. And the guy spit on me. And I I remember we're all on the playground at recess. I, I went crying to my brother, my brother G. You met my brother G. And all the other kids were like, ooh, he's going to get Gerald. Ooh. And, and I was scared of this dude. He was so big. He could take me easily. But I went and told my brother G. Now, at this moment, I'm I'm pretty safe because the guy did his damage. He already spit on me. It was rude. But, you know, it was over. He didn't, like, come chasing after me or anything. But I went and got my brother. And my brother G was like, he did what? He did what? He's like, let's go. Let's go. And he was, like, playing football with his friends. And so we walked over. And he got in the guy's face. And he's like, hey, man, what's the problem? And the two of them started woofing with each other back and forth. Next thing you know, my brother grabs the guy. And he body slams him. And of course, of course, right at that moment, a teacher comes running out <laughs> like, what's going on? I mean, she was nowhere to be seen when this guy was bullying me, starting to trouble. That's how it always is. Right. And, and she and she gives this lecture about how there's a right way to handle it. And my brother got in trouble. He actually got suspended for me. He got in trouble with my parents for me. But I'll, t I'll tell you. Not only did my brother and I feel this way, but all the kids on that program felt like my brother was a hero. They all felt like he did the right thing, even though it was it was technically against the rules. And one could make an art moral argument that there was a proper way for him to handle this. He probably should have told a teacher and had the teacher deal with it in a certain way. And so I, I feel like what's going on is a lot of people are observing these instances and they're saying, yeah, but that violence, that excessive violence, it happened to a person that was breaking the law or a person that hurt so many people or did these wrong things, therefore was justified. And, and I think there's there's something off there, but I think that's a part of what might be going on. But there's something there's something off, but there's also something right there. There's a reason we have that sort of intuitive sense of like, <clears throat> you know, the turn turn the other way and sort of let Batman do his thing outside of the law. I think, I think part of it is actually a good intuition. Part of it is understanding that formal institutions like written law, um, this idea of the rule of law, which is a myth. We've talked about this before. Um, understanding that that is not, that is not 
always nuanced or just or efficient. And in fact, it's often not. And understanding that like emergent forms of justice and social norms are often better at handling these situations than some sort of top-down rule. So there's there's this phenomenal book called The Not-So-Wild Wild West, one of my favorite books, truly amazing. And it busts all these myths about the, you know, the, the American West before it was all formally turned into, you know, states and, and all these things. This myth that it was this lawless, violent place and everyone was, you know, constantly shooting each other and blah, blah, blah. I mean, just statistically, it's it's untrue. It was actually not very violent. Uh, it, was pro- it was less violent than the eastern cities in, in many cases. And the sort of norms that emerged, though from afar, they seem like, whoa, that seems really, you know, barbaric. Like, uh, you know, hanging somebody, having everybody get, get together and decide if someone's guilty and hanging them or whatever. But it hardly ever happened. And it was a norm that emerged given the constraints that they had out here on this frontier. This was actually the most efficient and most peaceful and fair way to mete out justice, which is why it sort of emerged as the norm. And I think we have this sort of intuitive understanding that just because later you know, these Western territories become official states and now they have this justice system that's, you know, basically descended from on high, slapped down. Okay, these are laws and rules. This is illegal. This is not. This is what the punishments are, this, that, and the other thing. The arrogance to assume that that is going to do a better job of coordinating activities and keeping peace on the ground with these people who have, you know, very distinct needs and preferences and tastes and constraints and all these things. The idea that that sort of imposed you know, justice system that, that comes from somebody's rational mind far away and they just assume it's going to work well is going to work better than what's evolved on the ground is contrary to evidence. And it sort of rubs us the wrong way. It's like, no, no, we have our own way of kind of dealing with these things. Now, again, neither one is perfect. This is not a utopian argument, but it's about which one works better given the constraints there. And I think we, so we kind of have this intuitive understanding that like playground justice if you sort of left the teachers out of it, it would it would an equilibrium would sort of develop, especially if you have a, a natural open system where people are free to come to the playground and free to leave. Not not a prison like system, which unfortunately is the case in most schools. But if you actually have a system where people are free to come, free to leave, people of, of various ages, you're going to develop these sort of norms and rules that emerge spontaneously that probably work better than whatever the teachers draft up at the education board meeting um, in in terms of having the nuance and stuff. So I think there's an intuition there that's right. I, I But I, there's something in there that's also troubling as well, because because when you apply that to, especially when you apply it to some something like police where they have a monopoly on violence, they have no competition, they have the ability to you know do this with impunity and not get fired. People have this disproportionate respect for them. They don't hold them to the same rules then it's very dangerous to sort of be like, yeah, let's sort of let the frontier justice um, handle it because it's not actually frontier justice. It's not actually an open give and take system where it can emerge. These guys have a monopoly on the initiation of force. And then you're saying, let's just sort of let things happen. And that's that's rigging the game. Uh, Absolutely, man. You know, another thing this makes me think about is a conversation I had with a defense attorney 
And um, I asked her, would you defend someone if you knew they were guilty? And she said, I absolutely would. And I said, why? I can't think of any reason why she would defend somebody unless uh, she had a firm belief in their innocence. And she said, because everyone has rights. And this is never more ignored than when you're dealing with someone who's clearly guilty. We all have a tendency to treat people as if they're who are guilty as if they deserve everything that expresses our rage. And we just tend not to think very clearly about rights as it applies to people when we believe they're guilty. And so I do what I do to remind people that even those who are guilty of crime have rights. They're human beings and there are limits to the, uh, what constitutes appropriate punishment for them. So it, it's interesting to just kind of take a look at that of, of how our perception tends to get skewed. Our use of logic isn't as good when you factor in things like uh, the difficulty we have uh, feeling sympathy for people when we've arrived at certain conclusions about their guilt and so forth. Combine that with all of those other observations, it becomes somewhat of a complex issue for us. You know, uh, let's bring it down to a more tangible, usable um, place because that's, you know, that's that's what we love to do is not on this show is not just theorize about how things ought to be or should be or what's interesting about this or that uh, system or approach. But on the individual level, I think regardless of how you sort of imagine, you know, justice systems should be, there's some really interesting insights here on the personal level. And whether or not it breaks the law, whether or not breaking the law even matters, whether or not it's just or unfair or moral and under what conditions, I think just asking myself, what does it do to me if I'm the person that desperately want someone to get it good and hard. Does that sentiment itself, is that making me a better person? Is that who I want to be? Or is it making me a little bit worse? Do I feel like I'm a little bit cheapened and overly vindictive and I'm sort of giving into a bloodlust? In some cases, yes. In some cases, no. If I'm the one who initiates, do I, am I willing to live with myself being, you know, if someone throws a pie in my face and I go beat them down, am I proud of that? Do I want to be that kind of person? Is there some alternative way I would like to respond? And sort of sitting in that and thinking whether or not it's like right or wrong for society at large or these abstractions, just thinking about what kind of person do I want to be? Not what am I allowed to be? Not what will other, people's, other people judge me for? Maybe everybody will cheer me on if somebody insults me and I punch them in the face. But do I want to be that person? Now, maybe I do. Maybe that's exactly who I want to do. I'm, I don't know, but I, I really want, I think it, having that self-honesty and examination, what's my ideal way of dealing with this? What, what kind of person would I love to be? And when I think about that, I always, I always want to be like the, like the mysterious, like Zen master guy in a movie who's like, could kick everyone's ass at any time, but is so unflappable and so like, so high, so high above all these hecklers that they don't even know. And he just calmly walks through and, you know, ignores them all. Like, that's who I want to be. That's not the person who snaps on every crazy guy with a coconut pie. You know what I mean? So like, even if it's fair, even if others will be cool with it. And you see this on Facebook, not in the realm of actual violence, but in the realm of like name calling and stuff. You can see when someone goes on the attack because they feel they've been treated unfairly and they say, you know what? The next time someone calls me a this, a this, a this blah, 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 you know, I'm going to unfriend you all, blah, blah, blah. And then they'll get all these people being like, yeah, good for you. Yeah. And 
it's clear that they're allowed to do that under the norms of Facebook. They're allowed to do that from their friend circle. In fact, they may even get praise for that. But I often feel like it betrays something. I, you know, again, I don't want to psychoanalyze other people, but I know for myself, like, I have to resist doing that sometimes because I don't want to be the kind of person that goes out there and every time somebody says something mean to me, I'm like, yeah, well, you can just unfriend me now. Even if every one of my friends would be like, yeah, that was totally justified. I don't care if it's justified. I don't want to be that person. I want to be too big for that. I want to have more interesting things going. I don't want it to get to me like that. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely, man. Hey, if you don't like the Chicago Bulls, everybody out there, you can unfriend me right now. (laughs) (laughs) You know know what I always wonder about the people that do that? Because there are people that do these status updates like every three months. It's so so self-serious and weird. Like, hey, if you believe the following things, you can unfriend me right now. And it's like... Uh, well, why are you now? I mean, do you think do you think all the people that are friends with you, if you just unfriended them quietly, would they notice, you know, like, like and, and look, they, it could clearly clearly you're bold enough to go on Facebook and call those people out indirectly. Right. Like, so let's say if it's, it's like if you're voting for Trump or if you're voting for Hillary, you can unfriend me right now. OK, so clearly you feel comfortable drawing that line. And you're not scared to offend people that are voting one way or the other. So you might as well just go ahead and unfriend them. You know, you, you might as well unfriend them right now. You, don't you, know have any- what, you know what it sounds like to me? Like, can you imagine? I mean, this is a marketplace. People can just friend and unfriend freely. And you, I just assume that if you're out there posting a bunch of stuff, people that like you are going to be friends with you and people that don't are going to unfriend you if they don't like it. And it's just sort of, it doesn't have to be this big dramatic thing. Imagine if like a company was like, Hey, I just want you to know, if you don't like the way that Nike shoes look, you can go shop at Reebok. Can you imagine like Nike coming out with a campaign like that? You know, like I think, I think I would actually like, love that. I have, we have a hundred people waiting right now on our list. You, you can just leave, you know, it's like, well, we know that it's like redundant. We already know that, you know, why are you, are you reminding yourself of this or what? I've always found that to be pretty hilarious, especially when they quote the number of people that are like waiting in their friend wait list that, you know, they'll happily replace you with. It's like, it's like, well then just do it. You don't need to tell me. I got 50 people lined up right now, ready to be my friend, son. (laughs) 50 people, son. (laughs) We should do a segment, by the way, a weekly segment called Facebook Warrior. We can have like a little music, like a little guitar, like Facebook warrior. This is truly one of my favorite. You know this because I always send you screenshot. This is like one of my most entertaining activities. When I do my Facebook pop-ons, I pop on Facebook like multiple times a day and it's never for more than five minutes at a time. And I just sort of go in and out. And usually one or two of those times I'll scroll down my newsfeed. Not most of the time. There's just too much crap in there to keep up on, but I'll scroll down the newsfeed just to see what's what. And there'll be a bunch of people often that I don't recognize, but just like people doing, people being unfunny, being like super serious on Facebook is just one of the funniest things to me in the world. It just cracks me up. So like the the other day there was one, someone was like, you know, don't very seriously and almost like politely, you know, don't ever refer to me as dude or bro or I'll unfriend you. And I don't know. I just was so tempted to pe- to post under there. Hey, dude, calm down, bro. You know, uh, just just something about it. Like, <laughs> Wait, why? Why was he mad about bro? I don't know. It just it was something like that. That's disrespectful. You know, if you do that, then you know I'll unfriend you. And I mean, it was just, it was <laughs> it was amazing. So yeah, we should do that. We should have a weekly segment where it's just like 
the problem is I don't want to be like mean to people and like call out specific people, but I just find things funny. I don't want to attach them. You know, I'm not trying to make fun of any, anybody. If that's how you roll, uh, you don't want to be called bro. I get it, but <laughs> I mean, I don't get it, but oh man. Um, well, 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 we could say we're not being mean to people. We're being mean to ideas. No, but you know what though, man, some stuff is just funny and I, I've, I've never heard of a joke that everybody found funny. So everybody isn't going to laugh at everything. And I'm not going to stop myself from laughing just because there's two people out there or 2 million people out there. That's like, that's not funny to me. Um, well go ahead and be serious about the stuff you're serious about, but it's funny to me. It's funny to me when people do certain things like go on Facebook and announce that they're about to clean up their friend list. You know, that's funny to me. <laughs> it's hilarious to me. Oh, man. Uh, separate topic. You ready? Kick it. Okay. I just had this observation, and I thought this was kind of cool. Um, we're going to, next week, uh, me and Heather and the kids, we're going with another family down to Florida, and we're going to go to Legoland. And, you know, Heather was like, oh, we got to get the tickets. It's like some crazy amount, you know, 50 bucks or 100 bucks a person or something like that. And then she goes, oh, there's a homeschool discount. So it's like $13 a kid for homeschoolers. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. And then I, you know, I was just thinking about this. And I was remembering when I was a kid, there's a pretty vibrant homeschool community in West Michigan where I grew up. And every winter, both of the uh, downhill ski places in, in near Kalamazoo, um, they had homeschool days. And it was like two days a week. And between the two of them, it covered like three or four days a week. And it was like five bucks, rentals included, and homeschoolers could come at like nine in the morning and ski until three o'clock when school got out and all of the other uh, full paying customers would come. And it was super cheap. And we had like this, you know, we, I mean, we'd be there like every day. We'd ski all winters, all these homeschool ski day. It was amazing. Um, and there's a lot of stuff like that. And it just made me think, this is, a, this is really an interesting thing. This is this quiet market response to homeschoolers. This recognition that, okay, nobody is really using the ski slopes during the school year, during the day when school is in session. So we've got this underutilized asset. Homeschoolers are around. Let's just go really cheap and get all the homeschoolers to come. Or Legoland, they must have a similar thing because I know from growing up, like we always, one of the advantages of homeschooling, we always went to Cedar Point or whatever amusement parks on school days because they weren't busy. And so often they have these homeschool discounts to, to incentivize that. Like, Hey, we've got this asset sitting here. Let's get more use out of it. If all the other kids are in school, let's do a discount to the people who are homeschooled and have them come. And it's this very quiet market response. There's not, you know, these places are not out there blasting far and wide. We're homeschool friendly, blah, blah, blah. But they understand because homeschoolers are a tiny, tiny market. It's this little niche and they don't have a ton of what you would assume they don't have a ton of market power. But that's what's beautiful about a free market. Tiny minorities, little niche groups can have amazing market power. And the ability often these homeschool groups will go to a business and say, hey, can you give us a homeschool discount? We can bring 50 people every Wednesday if you give us half off. Otherwise, you don't get 50 people every Wednesday, you know? Um, so tiny group can have this amazing market power and it's this totally peaceful thing. There's no war. There was no, you know, bittersweet ski slopes was not like, you know, 
having a war where the the homeschoolers and the public schoolers were fighting over uh, you know control of the slopes. There was no like you know should we vote to have a homeschool discount or not, or should we have a discount for public school? Well, that's not fair. <laughs> what about private Catholic schools? You know what I mean? Because this is the market. It's quietly, peacefully, this response to, hey, here's this niche group over here. They're really small. They don't have a ton of market power in like the traditional sense, but they actually have enough to where we can cater to them, to their specific needs. And it's such an amazing contrast to the political world where everything is zero sum and where it's all majority rule. A tiny minority of fringe people like homeschoolers in the political realm, they never are going to win. They're not going to get their candidate elected. They're not going to get, you know, the laws passed that favor them. But they're small. They're fragmented. There's not that many of them, whatever. And and that actually sucks in the political realm because everything's zero sum. We're going to pass a policy. It's, you know, this is going to be the price. It's going to be this or it's going to be that. You know, these are going to be the hours of operation. This or that. That's how things run in the political realm. In the market, it's like, here's our normal price. But let's quietly create a homeschool price and let's quietly do this thing over here for this other group. And let's do, you know, it's really amazing. I think that's a, such a something that's so lost on people that they think that the market is like, oh, all the big, you know, whatever the masses, uh, whatever the masses like, you know, they're going to win or whatever the people with all the money. And that's how politics works. That's how government works. That's not how markets work. Markets allow the tiniest group to gain economic power, to gain market power, because winning over just one tiny niche can be huge. If you're an individual business, if you're the one business that all of the kayakers are going to go to, that's a tiny group, kayakers, but it's not to your business. If there's 100,000 kayakers in the country, that's amazing. You know, if there's 10,000, that's amazing. So I just think I thought it was a really, um, you know, just a, a powerful reminder of that quiet, non-flashy, peaceful way in which markets allow all these different groups to sort of get what they want without anybody else losing anything. Oh man, it, it absolutely amazes me um, that people commonly make this argument that the markets are gonna leave certain groups of people disenfranchised or underserved. And I'm always like, you mean like how it is right now? Right now, with the government monopoly on that service, you know, I mean, it's it's amazing because if, if you consider the, the thing that everybody is afraid of, everyone's afraid of greedy people and selfishness and people being in it for themselves. And one of the things that people forget is that if you're truly greedy, that means you want something for yourself and you're not going to compromise what you want for yourself in the name of love or in the name of compassion if you're truly the greedy monster we make you out to be and that means that means if you do something insane like charge a price that people literally can't afford that means you don't get to get what you want that means you don't get to get your money you know but but people come up with all of these comic book scenarios that totally ignore you know the assumptions that they make about the, the forces that drive the markets. It, it actually cracks me up. I mean, I, I tend to look at everything from an entrepreneurial point of view. And as an entrepreneur, when people are unhappy with what I do, I, I just don't get to say things like, but you don't understand what it's like to do my job. You know, um, yeah. it's an opportunity. I mean, this, this pluralistic marketplace, if you find me a disenfranchised group, I will find you a business opportunity or 10, you know, I mean, that's, that's, what's beautiful about it. 
You don't have to wait until city council decides that we're going to have more restaurants at this price point or more kid friendly parks or dog friendly, you know, environments. You can just go build one because if there's an unhappy little niche of people and you can dominate that niche and be their service provider, that's a good business. Yeah. And you know what? And we don't have to have debates either about whether or not your problem is real or are you hallucinating? Are you making an issue out of something that isn't an issue? I mean, if you decide that um, if you go if you come to my restaurant, I own a restaurant and, and you don't like the food or you don't you make a complaint. And I and I, I don't I don't get to say to you as that restaurant owner, Isaac, you're just saying that because you you want to feel special. Or Isaac, you're just saying that because you're insecure as a person and you're blaming it on my burger. I mean, in entrepreneurship, who cares? You, you just know, don't make, appreciate make, the kind of food that we have. Your palate isn't developed enough. Yeah, you don't know what a good burger tastes like. You know what? In the market, I may be right. Let's just go <laughs> ahead and assume I'm right. But guess what? I don't get to have your business unless I satisfy you. And I'm totally free to say I don't want to serve customers like Isaac Morehouse. And and that means in order to get what I want, I have to find enough people who are not like you that I make happy. But I immediately incentivize someone else to come steal you away from me for that same reason that we're all afraid of, greed. Greed incentivizes competition. Someone's going to say, uh-oh. TK can't make people like Isaac Morehouse happy. He doesn't know how to relate to people like that. I'm going to swoop right in and I'm going to get all of that money because I know how to make people like that feel special. You know, that's what happens in the market. You hardly ever see that. Oh, know? man, uh, I love ever. I love watching, by the way, marketplace interactions, especially in like high stress, high chaos environments and just sort of watching the different ways people handle things and the different ways that they, I, I mean, really the, the insight is that the marketplace, especially the anonymous marketplace, it enhances civility. And actually there's, I think I have a podcast episode. It was an episode, but yeah, anonymity enhances civility, at least a blog post about how like, you know, I love the fact that the market's anonymous because it makes people more, um, kind to each other. If your sibling is like, Hey, uh, you know, you put the silverware away wrong. You're going to be like, shut up or put it away the way I want to. Right. In the marketplace, I was just at Qdoba and it was incredibly busy at lunchtime and their oven was broken. There was a guy there repairing the oven and the ice machine was broken and people were like, Hey, how come the ice machine isn't working? They ran out of napkins and somebody like didn't show up for their shift. So the manager is there. And he's like making burritos, running over and trying to help the guy at the cash register who was very slow and wasn't very good at it. And then he's every couple minutes, someone's like, are there napkins? And I saw this like over and over again. He's like, oh, uh, no, we ran out of napkins. And he runs into the bathroom. He grabs out the big roll of paper towel, like takes it out of the thing. And he starts tearing off pieces and hand them to people and saying, I'm so sorry. We don't have any napkins. We're going to get some in soon. But you can use this paper towel. I apologize. And he's, and he's trying to make everyone happy and he's sweating. And some of the people were perfectly fine. Like, oh, I didn't see any napkins. And some were like really unreasonable. You know, like this one guy came in the midst, this guy's sweating. He's, he's making burritos. Then he's over here. He's doing the cash register. He's running, he's giving people napkins. He's cleaning up. I mean, he's busting his butt to, tr to make customers happy. I was really impressed with him. And then this customer comes over and goes, um, a guy who had just come and asked for napkins and he can see this guy stressed. He goes and sits down, comes right back and goes, Hey, the forks, the, the plastic forks are facing uh, tines up in the little cup. I just wanted to let you know that you should probably go tines down. <laughs> 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 and, 
and the guy's like, you know, and it's a burrito place. Hardly anybody uses a fork anyway. But and the guy's like, oh, thank you for letting me know. I'll get on that as soon as I can. And I could tell, I could see in his mind him thinking, are you serious? This guy's going to, you know, but he totally he, he wanted to take well. that fork and stab that dude in the yeah, neck with it. You but know he was he so to. civil about it. And he wasn't even mean to the employees he had under him. Cause I mean, it's not like he, it, it would, things would get better if he fired him on the spot who were like really kind of just standing around, not doing very well. So he's kind of trying to help them. He was like, just being so he was being like what humans like the best in humans like responding to a crisis with aplomb and it's in this market context you know again if 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 he was you know with his buddies or his roommate and he was like hey you didn't put the forks away right you know i doubt he would have been like you know what i'm so sorry i'm gonna get on that as soon as i finish doing all this other stuff (laughs) you know what i mean (laughs) absolutely man And, and and it illustrates how there are other reasons for why we behave civil uh, apart from the fear of a police officer coming to arrest us. You mentioned the other week that movie The Purge and how uh, they shut the government down for a day and everybody just goes around, you know, robbing and killing. And it, and it sort of paints this picture of of um, of humanity that says we're all just waiting to harm each other. And the only thing that's keeping us in check is the law and it's like no actually people care about themselves that that's an assumption that you can pretty much bank on you may not care about me but you care about you and that gives me the power within a certain kind of incentive structure to predict your behavior within a pretty narrow margin of error it makes you and i both reliable the fact that we like ourselves and that we want ourselves to be okay to feel good to achieve our own goals um you know, that that is something you can bank on perhaps more than anything else. You know, when people go shopping, sometimes they say things like, oh, I don't trust that guy because he's trying to make money off me. I usually don't trust people unless I know they're trying to make yes. money off me. If they're like, hey, and we don't make any money on this transaction. I'm like, so your service is bad. Your prices are something's off. You know, like <laughs> I don't trust you if yeah. you're making that claim. Um, the uh, the thing you said before about entrepreneurship meaning you don't have to debate things. You don't have to win debates. Man, that one was so powerful for me because when I was really passionate about first started getting like more and more passionate about, um, education and higher education. And I had these theories, these beliefs that like college is this massive colossal waste and it's not making people more valuable and they don't need it. They, the, the, Talented people can bypass it all together and do something better. And so I'm starting to like talk about this with people and, and, and make my you know theories known. And I remember talking to this professor and this was even when I had the idea for Praxis, but I hadn't launched it yet. I have just starting to get it off the ground and I was talking about it. And this professor friend of mine was like, yeah, I get the argument that too many people go to college, but I just think too many dumb people go to college because it's too hard for them. So fewer people that can't cut it should go to college. But you're claiming that smart people, ambitious people, talented people, that they shouldn't go to college, that they're too good for college, that they can succeed without college. He was like, show me where any of these people exist. He's like, they, I don't. these people don't exist that you're talking about. <laughs> and the beauty was I couldn't win that debate and I didn't have to. I just said, I will. That's why I'm launching this company. I will. And that's the beauty of entrepreneurship. I didn't have to sit there and be like, well, let me pull my data and let me No, there are people. It was like, look, if I'm right, I make money. If I'm wrong, I go out of business. 
I don't need to win you over. I never, and I never went back to that guy since and said, Hey, look, here are the hundreds upon hundreds of people who have applied to our program. Here are all the people who have gone through the program. Look, here's my proof. I'm right. Cause I don't even care. I'm just building a business, you know, like something yep. changes in your mindset. You stop caring about being right in other people's eyes, other people who are not your customer. And you start caring about creating value for that customer. You can get your questions answered by the real world with people putting real money behind it instead of just theorizing, you know what? I think people would prefer to do this kind of transaction with this technology. Really build it. Let's find out. I love that. Oh man. And you know what? You would have never won that debate anyway, because every bit of data you would have given that guy would have just given him a reason to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that person is the exception. They're special and everyone isn't like them. Or he could have just said something like, um, Sure, but we don't know how much better off they would have been. So that person made a million dollars in spite of not going to college, but they probably would have made two million and been even happier and would have known about philosophy had they gone to college. I mean, th th there's nothing you could have said to someone who didn't want to believe your conclusion to prove it to them. You yeah. know, it, it, it's sort of like with music. There's nothing you're going to say to me. Nothing you're going to say to me to convince me that Lady Gaga's music is good music. I mean, th th there's just no argument you're going to make. But I don't think Lady Gaga really cares. You know, she's got her army. She's doing her thing. She's creating value for her people. You know, more power to her. Yeah, there's a market out there somewhere for just about everything, whether it's big enough to sustain a certain level of income or whatever else is an open question. But that's what I love. There's a market out there. And finding that market is more important than convincing other people that it exists. Finding hey, let, it for let, yourself. Let me say one thing about this market though, because because I, I don't want to just make the statement that that markets are awesome and that they're superior, that they're better. I also want to take it a little bit further and say that people know this intuitively and they're scared of markets. I think people operate in the realm of debate um, because it's safe. Now, a lot, a lot of debaters come off as really bold. They come off as like hyper-rational people who are all about intellectual honesty. I'm, and I'm willing to do the thought experiments where, you know, about drowning babies. Uh, but thought experiments are safe compared to field experiments. A absolutely. And, you know, staying in that safe realm of debate, as useful as debate can be in certain contexts, it, it allows you to maintain snobbishness without accountability. It allows you to believe things like, Oh, uh, of course, everyone knows that the music of Frank Sinatra is far superior to Lady Gaga's. You know, it allows you to, to get away with things like that without being accountable to anything. It allows you to dismiss everyone in society as stupid without putting your ideas to the test to see if you can actually create value with them. Like, OK, you, you really believe that? You really believe that's true? You really believe that's valuable? Go out there and prove it. You don't just get to sit back in your rocking chair and dismiss everybody as dumb. You know, um, go out there and prove it. And, and, and that holds us accountable. And that scares the hell out of people, which is why most people like arguing more than they like creating, because, you know, it's easy to sit back and look at what somebody else creates and just criticize than it is to get yourself out there and see if you can really do it, because it's a lot harder than it looks. Hey, so this is a good tie into uh, we'll, we'll make this our last topic here. I got to head off to the airport pretty soon. The insecurity of academics. This is something that has always fascinated me and uh, humored me, I guess. And I see this a lot. I've just been seeing some discussions on Facebook among some, some academic philosophers and things recently that reminded me of this. There's this idea that like, you know, 
without me and without my state funded job at, you know, Pinecrest Community College where I'm teaching this or whatever, I'm doing research at state university, blah, blah, blah. These ideas would die. No one would learn them. No one would understand what truth is and what justice is and the nature of reality and these philosophical concepts without me and without this system supporting me. And, you know, you, you can't, you can't just bypass that. That's important. This is so important. And they're claiming that it's so important is why they have to keep getting funded with it. But those are two, in my mind, sort of contradictory claims. If this knowledge that you hold and that you're able to teach and research on is so valuable to humanity, that means there's a market for it. That means someone somewhere is going to understand the value of that and they're going to be willing to pay for it. And so to claim that it's so valuable to human progress and happiness and fulfillment and the good life and all this other stuff on the one hand, and on the other hand, that if it weren't for your, you know, taxpayer subsidized $60,000 salary to teach these classes, uh, all these ideas would just vanish instantly. You know, like those things seem contradictory to me. Like the only thing keeping us in touch with the most important ideas in the world are, you know, state run bureaucratic educational institutions and government grants. I mean, come on. You know, that's that just seems so insecure to me. Like, I feel like most of these academics, the good ones, tremendously undervalue their own abilities and their own skills and the value that those things can bring to people's lives because they're used to getting students in their classes who are not choosing them, who are in the class because basically they just need a credit and who are not really paying because they're getting subsidized loans or they got grants and scholarships and whatever. And so they're used to customers who don't care and don't want to be there. And so they're trying to force them to care and they get one out of a hundred to care and it changes their life. And they say, see how important it is. But I'm like, that's because you're in a warped market. If you were in a complete free market and you had to earn that living from voluntary paying customers who actually wanted the knowledge you were imparting, not just the piece of paper that's arbitrarily attached to it, then you would find out quickly what works and what doesn't. And I bet you would get, you would find a market, not just randomly bound by geography or whoever happens to go to that school or whoever happens to need a credit, blah, blah, blah. But people who actually want you and your interpretation on these particular ideas, you'd find ways to make the ideas relatable to the market that's interesting to you and vice versa. And there's tremendous value in that. You're underselling yourself. You're, you're, it's like this insecurity about their own market value. And I think if you're really crappy and you're just being lazy and not doing anything, then maybe you wouldn't survive. But I think good ideas, interesting people will find interesting ideas. You don't need to force it down their throats. You don't need to coerce them. You don't need to trick them and wrap good ideas inside little games and say, let's make learning math fun by making it a game. People will learn. Interesting people will find interesting ideas. And what makes interesting people? People who are free to pursue meaningful things, meaningful work, meaningful activities. If they're doing things based on their own internal drive, they're going to become interesting. And sooner or later, they're going to find these ideas interesting. They're going to decide, wow, philosophy's really got something going for it. Because it does. But you can't force it on them and get any value out of it. Well, Isaac, I think you're being naive. I think you're being delusional. Uh, you're clearly overestimating the goodness of people, uh, and we need the government to do something about it because we know they'll get it right. No, man. You know, th this reminds me of a, of a dilemma uh, I experienced a lot growing up in church. My, my father 
would always warn his his staff um, against the tendency to dismiss people as not caring about the truth anymore as an explanation for poor church attendance. Because there was always a tendency when no one was coming to church for elders, deacons, and so forth to say, yeah, people just don't love the Lord. Or, yeah, people just aren't interested in what's right anymore. (laughs) And my father would always warn against that as a dangerous attitude because it leads to this sort of elitist, isolationist attitude where you say, yep, we don't need to do anything different. We don't need to change anything about our strategy or our attitude or our lifestyle or our approach. It couldn't be the fact that we're not loving enough. It couldn't be the fact that we're not living up to the standards of the gospel in our own lives. It couldn't be the fact that we're not um, reaching out to people and, and dealing with their struggles or their problems or that we're not being caring enough. It all comes down to people just don't care about the truth. And that doesn't challenge you at all. It doesn't challenge you at all. It, it allows you to be totally right You don't have to do anything different. You don't have to change. You don't have to challenge yourself. You can just keep showing up to your little in-group, keep feeling good about yourself, keep being self-righteous, and just dismiss everybody who doesn't show up as being wrong. Imagine going back to the the marketplace analogy we used earlier. Imagine if someone set up a restaurant, no one came to eat there, and the restaurant owner said, well, I guess people just don't love good food anymore. I mean, are you kidding me? Maybe you chose a bad location. Maybe your food isn't as good as you think, or maybe you're only thinking about your own concept of good and you're completely ignoring other people's concept of good. Maybe you need to get out there and get to know the people that you want to reach. You know, maybe you're speaking in a language that nobody cares about or understands. And and I think this happens a lot with academic philosophy. I think some of the smartest people in the world are academic philosophers. Some of my best friends and my biggest heroes are academic philosophers. But I, I also think there's there's a tendency to just sort of assume that people are either stupid or people aren't interested or people don't care about ideas. And sometimes academia gives people an out. It allows them to sort of speak in the languages that they can only understand, argue about the things that only they're interested in arguing about, completely ignore the market and suffer no consequences for it. And when you don't have to suffer any real consequences for ignoring people, well, it incentivizes you to keep ignoring them. So I I, I think some of it does come down to insecurity. Some of it comes down also to fear. Um, Some of it comes down to just dismissing people and not being accountable to them. There's a lack of imagination, too, because when we're saying, you know, being accountable to the market, I'm sure some academic types are like, oh, that's that's like anti-intellectual. Oh, okay, so every philosopher should be writing, you know, uh, philosophy in Katy Perry's music or some, you know, like, or they should be doing cheesy, (laughs) you know, YouTube videos about, you know, philosophy in two seconds or whatever. No, the market is so much more broad and diverse than that. There's a market for colloquia of 20 people to spend a weekend diving really deep into Heidegger or something. I mean, there are people who would be happy to pay five grand to spend a weekend with you going deep into a particular subject. There's a market for people that want to do original research on things that seem to have no practical value. There, the market is so diverse. It doesn't just mean this, What we t- like what we talked about earlier, it doesn't just mean appeal to the majority. It's, this is not the political game. This is not the political game. This is, you can find a tiny niche minority in the market that has enough people with enough interest 
that you can do phenomenal things appealing to that tiny niche. So it's not accountability to the market is not accountability to the least common denominator. It's not anti-intellectualism. It's not the death of all higher thinking or basic research or whatever else. That, that is That lacks so much imagination. The market is amazingly diverse and there is a value in those things and there is a demand. It's just gonna look different than you might think. And you're gonna be better, your product's gonna be better, and the world's gonna be better if you get out from underneath the cushy arm of subsidized, institutionalized, bureaucratized academia. Yeah, and the, te the tendency to look at it like that too is just another symptom of the problem. The tendency to go to say something like, well, sorry, Isaac, you know, all philosophy can't be turned into a Katy Perry song. It's, it's sort of like <laughs> the, fact, the fact that you would even think that just goes to show how out of touch you are with people. If you think that everybody likes Katy Perry or that everybody <laughs> needs it to be broken down in that sense, that everything has to be, you know, McDonaldized, then you're already out of touch with reality. You know, mm -hmm. um, Whole Foods and Trader Joe's will never, never be as popular as McDonald's. They will never make as much money as McDonald's. They don't need to. Like you said, it's not a democracy. It's the market. Mm. TK. What are you going to leave us with as a recommendation? A recommendation. I'm going to leave you with uh, a Twilight Zone episode called Five Characters in Search of an Exit. Um, you can watch it on Amazon Prime or on Netflix. It's a great episode that sort of illustrates humanity's effort to make sense of its existence and all of the different ways we try to cope with our problems and escape our plights. And it does it in a way that is entertaining, witty, funny, and intellectually stimulating. All right. Five characters in search of exit, uh, twilight zone. You know, I'm going to go with, I don't, I don't think I've done this one before. Um, Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance. Since we were just talking about philosophy, this is a really, really good book. And it's one of those books where like sometimes it gets poo-pooed because, you know, every sophomore philosophy student is like, oh, that book changed my life. And then people sort of look down on it. It is a really phenomenal book. It's very well written. It's very intriguing. And it kind of dives into the tension between Western analytic philosophy and kind of more non-linear, abstract, sometimes Eastern, that's maybe unfairly, but like a Eastern, not, not mysticism quite, but a sort of non-analytic approach. And, I, and I'm not talking about like postmodern continental philosophy bullcrap <laughs> because that stuff's worthless. Um, this is a really fascinating book. And in just in speaking about philosophy being valued by the market, being applicable to our lives, um, I would say this is a book on philosophy, almost on the, the on method, philosophical method, and it's really popular and a lot of people really like it. Um, so Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, great book. I'm, I'm gonna go buy the book and, and find one sentence that strikes me as shallow and be like, <laughs> this is what Isaac Morehouse thinks philosophy is all about. <laughs> yuck, yuck, yuck. <laughs> oh man, hey TK, thanks for doing it early with me, man. Enjoy the weekend. It's been real, you too, man. Peace.